You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. We have been working over the past several weeks through um, the different minor prophets. And coming out of the Gospel of John, we had talked a lot about how Jesus had reinforced the faith of his disciples and had really encouraged them to lean on uh, you know, just previous history of how God had worked and functioned and cared for his people in the Old Testament. And so one of our challenges coming out of the Gospel of John is that we would know we would know and understand the history of Israel in such a way that it would help reinforce our faith. And so I decided to take us to a, a, a part of the Old Testament that we don't frequent very often, right? That a lot of us don't have a, a working knowledge of what was happening during the time of the minor prophets. And if we have before, you know, we, we've maybe forgotten some of that. And so we've been looking at that because I want us to see that the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament, that the way that God worked in the Old Testament is, is the ways that he continues to work in the New Testament, um, and that his, his power and his faithfulness can be relied upon um, even today. And I was challenged and convicted about that even in my own personal life, um, that I don't want to be an individual who um, believes that on Sundays or believes that when I'm reading the Bible, but as soon as I'm away from that, I function or act differently about how I think about God, right? And so I was laboring through this week, going back to school, trying to get us ready for the start of school, and just really kind of overwhelmed with uh, just pessimistic thoughts about how this school year is going to go in regards to us and our ability to keep our kids safe, and just kind of finding myself, you know, like, it doesn't matter what we do, we're going to have some type of outbreak, like we could, we could do everything right, and something's still going to go wrong, and, you know, just really found myself in a, in a bad spot this week, and um, I, was, I was up early one morning, and God just kind of overwhelmed me with a passage from the Old Testament um, in Exodus, where God is bringing plagues upon Egypt, and things are happening around them. But the Bible's very clear that while it hailed on the Egyptians, it didn't hail uh, on the land of Goshen, that God's people were spared from that. And I shared that with my staff, and I said, look, I don't believe that this passage is, is telling us that God always protects his people from bad things happening around them. Um, I don't think this, this passage is promising that God will do that, nor do I think it says specifically that it'll, uh, he'll do that for us right now. Um, but I said what it does communicate to me is that God can do that, um, that God can work in ways that defy logic, that defy what is happening around. And, uh, you know, case in point example, you know, is what's happened at Snowbird this summer. You know, we've been praying for for the camp there. We've been praying for the elders there that we, we support. We've been praying for their church. And in a, in a time, in a, in a summer where overnight camps have been shutting down all summer long because of outbreaks among staff or students, I was talking to Rob this weekend, and Rob said, you know what? Our last week is this week. We've had zero cases amongst our staff. We've had zero students that have contracted this here at camp. And you know, I said, well, that, does, that just doesn't make sense. Like, Everything that you're hearing is that all these other camps are having to shut down, like hundreds of kids have this and, you know, staff can't, can't stay. Um, and, and I just said, you know what, this is just a reminder to me that God is capable of, of acting in the ways that he did in the Old Testament when he chooses to. Um, he doesn't promise that he'll always act in certain ways, uh, but he's, he's certainly capable of acting in those ways. And I want us to see more of who God is through uh, these minor prophets to know this is who God is in the New Testament as well. He still possesses the same power, and and Nahum highlights the power of God in chapter one and what God is capable of doing and and what God does promise to do, both towards the remnant, those that He is choosing to save, and towards those who continue to act and function in evil ways. He promises to do certain things there as well, and so we're going to continue to see that. Um, again, we've looked at the 
the minor prophets of Hosea and Joel and Amos and Jonah, Obadiah and Micah. We've seen a ton about God's justice. We've seen a ton about his kindness, his slowness to anger. We've seen a lot about what it means for us, right? Because we, we talked about as image bearers of God, when we see things about God mentioned in scripture, we are called to, to image those type of traits to other people. And so when we see his justice, we see his kindness, these are things that should be a characteristic of us. Um, and we've seen some of the imagery there that these prophets use to talk about what the people should have been living like. And so we'll see that more today as we come to the minor prophet Nahum. Um, Nahum is a book that is specifically geared towards addressing the sin of Nineveh. Now, that should be familiar to us because it was just a few weeks ago where we looked at Jonah, and Jonah had come prophesying uh, to the people of Nineveh as well, right? And so um, same group, of, same, same city, not the same group of people, but this is the same city, okay? Um, and so God is working to address some things that he had previously brought up to them, had previously been addressed, and now God is moving to uh, address those again. And it's about 100 years later after he first came to Nineveh, okay? Let's look at our summary sentence for today. God's just character demands that he will act against evil, but his goodness shines forth in that he delays his action long enough so that evil humans can repent and run to him for refuge from the wrath that they deserve. God's just character demands that he will act against evil, but his goodness shines forth in that he delays his action long enough so that evil humans can repent and run to him for refuge from the wrath that they deserve for our kids. God's, God will judge sin, but gives people a chance to repent before he does. And I told you, this is the same city, right? So this is Nineveh that Jonah came to, where he came preaching a, a message of judgment. And we said that he gave no hope, gave no opportunity for repentance, but the people took opportunity that, that they thought might be there, right? The, the Bible says that they, they decide to repent and the king says, perhaps, maybe God will relent of his anger. Jonah hasn't told us that he would, but maybe he'll, re, he'll relent from his anger, right? And we see that he did. And we see that Jonah expected him to and Jonah hated God for that, right? God, uh, Jonah wanted God to judge Nineveh for, for their sin. The people repented though. About a hundred years pass and they fall back into sin. And here's where I think we have to think in terms of like timeline here. Like, I don't know how many people are still alive at this point that were there when Jonah came prophesying to them, right? It's the same city, right? But think about 100 years ago from now. Uh, think back into the, the, the 1920s, right? Like how long ago that was. Um, and imagine like people uh, repenting back then and, and how many of those people are still alive today, right? Um, and so, most of those people are probably gone. Um, and it's, an, it's a new batch of people who have come to, to rule and reign in this city. And they obviously haven't listened to their parents who repented um, and they've gone their own way and, and they've chosen to uh, reinstitute some of the bad practices that were there before. And now God's stepping in and ready to judge once again. All right, so from an introductory standpoint, Nahum is an oracle against the city of Nineveh. Bigger picture, it's against the Assyrian Empire because Nineveh is the capital of Assyria during that time. So it's day of the Lord on Nineveh. Again, that day of the Lord picture being the time where God steps into human history, deals with evil, and rescues his people. And that's what he's getting ready to do here. The judgment comes about 100 years after they had repented in response to Jonah's message. 
Um, they've become one of the world's great empires, one of the first great empires that the world would ever see. Um, and they were big oppressors of God's people. So not only were they attacking Judah, but they had really sacked the northern kingdom of Israel and had exiled them during their uh, imperial reign. Okay, so they were big uh, oppressors of God's people. Um, 2 Kings 17 describes the, the destruction of the northern kingdom, if you want to look at that for some background knowledge this week. But in 2 Kings 17, uh, they invade the northern kingdom of Israel to exile the people there. They are a violent and destructive people. Um, remember in Jonah chapter 3, verse 8, when uh, Jonah comes and presents his message of doom, the, the king challenges the people to put away their violent ways. Um, because the Assyrian Empire was known as a violent people, all right? Um, they were also a, a impenetrable-type city, at least from a human standpoint. Um, they had really constructed their city in such a way where they were protected, and it would take potentially an act of God for them to be dethroned. Um, they had a, a giant moat around their city, about 150 feet wide, about 60 feet deep. Um, and to think about like people having to like create that moat, like that's kind of overwhelming to think about the type of work and effort that would have had to gone into making this city what it was. It had two exterior walls with a gap in between. Uh, the most inner wall was a hundred feet high. Um, three chariots could have raced around the top of it, so extremely thick, right? Um, and this city comes crumbling down. Um, as God works and moves through the Babylonians who would come and attack the Assyrians and eventually rise to power. God replaces this one nation with an additional nation uh, as an act of judgment against Assyria. And so um, it's God working and moving and acting to make sure that this happens. Uh, It's written between um, 663 BC and 612 BC because the chapter, uh, chapter, I think the chapter two or three references the fall of a city named Thebes, which was part of Egypt. We know it fell in 663, so it talks about that as the past tense. It talks about the fall of Nineveh in the future tense, and Nineveh falls in 612. So it's somewhere in between uh, those two dates. Um, to kind of understand the flow of these three chapters, chapter one, it's all about God's jealousy uh, for his people, uh, for his glory, and why. And, and it talks about Nineveh falling. Chapter two, we're seeing, uh, we're seeing God as the judge, and he judges Nineveh, and Nineveh does fall. And then in chapter 3, we see the why behind it, and God talks about his justice and why he brings the judgment upon Nineveh. Okay, So understanding this book of Nahum, it's a book that you, maybe you've never read before, and, and hopefully you'll take some time to read it this week after getting today's foundation. But the fall of Nineveh and this great empire reminds us that God is at work in history in every age. Okay, So while these historical events are happening, what we see through the, through, the, through the minor prophet Nahum is that God is the one that's working in the midst of all of this. So it's not just empires rising and falling uh, because that's just how things go. It's God working and moving to use these different empires to bring judgment and uh, retribution upon other empires. And so God is at work. It reminds us that even today, God is at work as nations come and go, as... as uh, Powerful nations rise and fall as government leaders rise to power and are replaced. Uh, that God remains sovereign over all of that, um, which is such a, a comforting reminder in the midst of an election year, um, in the midst of our, our government and our president having to do maybe more than we're used to them having to do that affect our daily lives. Uh, such a comfort to know that God is in control of all of that. It gives us great hope that God will not allow violent empires to endure forever. 
He always brings down the violent and the arrogant. And we can, we can see that uh, as we look through history, uh, that it's certainly clear that God will allow and tolerate that sin for a while, but he doesn't allow violent empires to remain. Um, they come to power, and then they're, they're, they're off the, the charts of history very quickly. Um, God doesn't allow the violent and the arrogant to endure. Um, the, God's enemies are not in charge. Despite their brutality, despite their confidence, they don't get to, to rule and reign without his, um, his sovereign rule over them. Uh, the book closes kind of in an odd fashion with a question. Does anybody remember the other minor prophet that we looked at that closed with a question as well? What's the one minor prophet that we've looked at that ends with a question? Jonah, right? Which seems appropriate because we're talking about the same group of people here, right? Does anybody remember the question that the book closes with? Or the, the, the you don't have to quote it, but like what's the, what's the, the mindset about the question? Yeah, well, God's, God's basically pressing in on Jonah and he's like, should I not care for these people? Should, should I not have a heart for these people, right? And, and that's in the context of the people repenting and turning their hearts to him. And so God's basically posing the question to Jonah, why would I not turn myself to them as well? If I've, if I've turned my heart to you because you've repented towards me, why would I not do so to this city? Now, in, the, in, the, in this book of Nahum, the question ends with, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? Right? So he's talking to Nineveh, not Jonah, not Nahum. He's talking to Nineveh here, and he says, basically, who hasn't been affected by your evil? Right? Why is that question so important? Because when you read particularly chapter 2 and chapter 3, there's a lot of violent language in chapter 2 and chapter 3 about what God's going to do to Nineveh, um, particularly through the Babylonians that come and attack. And so you could read that, and we've talked before, you know, the critics want to use like a, a book like Nahum and say, man, the God of the Old Testament is angry. Uh, he has a temper. He's violent, right? But what you see inter, interweaved into all of these uh, verses in Nahum is that God is good, that he's slow to anger, uh, that he's just, and his response to sin is appropriate. And so the last thing that we're left with from Nahum is this question, why, why would this happen to Nineveh? Because their evil has been great, and their evil has not uh, left anyone untouched, right? And so it, it helps us to better understand why God has done what he has done in chapter 2 and chapter 3. A couple things that I want to leave you with, and then we're going to jump into the outline for today. Uh, number one, be mindful of our brothers and sisters who currently live under oppressive governments that are violent and arrogant. Right? We, 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 we live and we're disconnected, um, but there are, are Christians around the world today who live in, in countries under governments who, who fit the bill of what's being described here in, in this book of Nahum. Governments that are oppressive, governments that are harsh, governments that are violent, particularly towards people who follow Jesus. Um, and we need to be mindful of that. We need to be in prayer for our brothers and sisters um, who, who are enduring that. Uh, the comfort and the hope is that it won't, it won't last forever, that, that God will judge these violent nations because he is super compassionate towards his people, and he will not, left, he will not let that evil go unchecked. And, uh, and so we can, we can pray that our brothers and sisters in Christ today would be comforted by that, that, that whatever it is they're enduring today, it will not last forever, um, that God will step in and God will oppose 
these oppressors. Um, the second thing that I think that, that, that we ought to be thinking about today is that we can be thankful for our own state of being, uh, to live here in a, in a place where a government is generally good to his people. Um, we were talking about this in our D group, and um, you know, in Romans chapter 13, there's, there's a lot there about how we're to submit to our government, and I kind of led our discussion on Wednesday with, what part of our government do you have a hard time submitting to? Because when we were, when we were really honest, we were like, I mean, it's, it's, it's fairly easy to submit to a government here in the United States, a government that is, is far from perfect, obviously, um, but a lot of the things that are wrong with our nation and wrong with our government are not so much in the structures of our government, but more about uh, evil people that abuse the system, right? But for the most part, our government has been set up in such a way where it's fairly easy to submit to our government. And right now we're in a position where we're actually being uh, asked to submit to our government on a daily basis in ways that we're not used to, and we're having to make decisions about that. But for the most part, our government's very hands-off with us. We go about our business, and beyond like tax season, which is what we kind of came up with in our group, was like, well, we hate taxes, and we don't like to have to pay taxes, and so that's sometimes difficult. Um, beyond that, like it was hard for us to really come up with things that make it hard to submit to our government, right? And, and so we're, we're certainly blessed, and we can be thankful and grateful that God has placed us in a spot, and we certainly need to take advantage of the fact that because our government is so... Um, it's set up in such a way where we can exist as believers without much oppression, like how much more responsibility is there on us to push the gospel forth, right? To push the gospel forth where oppression isn't going to come upon us like it would in other nations. And so just two things to kind of be thinking about there, that we do have brothers and sisters who are living under nations like what is being described here in Nineveh, and we can be very thankful that we're not having to endure that, but to think through the implications of what it means to not have to endure that, and what responsibilities do we have because we don't have to endure that? All right, so let's jump into our notes now. Uh, number one, I'm going to give you three points of application today. Number one, we want to start by rejoicing because God is good, and that is one of the themes running through Nahum chapter one. So if you have your Bibles, turn there to chapter one, and I want to read to you. Um, we'll go ahead and read the whole chapter here. Um, this is an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. I told you there's a theme of goodness running through this, but it doesn't sound like that when you start reading, right? But verse three, the Lord is slow to anger and he's great in power. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers, Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Verse seven, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? Who will make a com- he will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, 
Though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be per, uh, perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What do we see here in chapter one? We see, number one, that he is omnipotent in his response towards sin. He's omnipotent in his response towards sin. What does omnipotent mean? It means that he has all the power, right? So what we see here in this passage is God is revealing his character. As Nahum is talking about how God's character is going to be seen in his response to sin, what we're seeing is an all-powerful God, a God who possesses all power necessary to do the things that he wants to do, right? And so you see creation being subjected and submissive to him. Right, The picture there of the seas uh, being made dry, the rivers being dried up, the whirlwind, the storm, the clouds being submitted to his feet, the mountains quaking before him, the earth heaving before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Right, God doesn't lack any power to do the things that he wants to do. Imagine us serving a God who was good and kind and gracious, but lacked the power to carry out some of those things. Imagine how hard that would be to serve a God who who wanted to do good to his children but couldn't guarantee that he could because he didn't possess enough power potentially to do so. Sometimes we mistakenly think that God and, and Satan are equal opposites that are opposed against each other, that war against each other, right? The, the devil and his, his demons are created beings that submit to the sovereign Lord, right? And so we, we are not ever in a position where God would say, I don't want this to happen to you, but I can't stop it from happening to you, right? He possesses all the power needed to carry out the things that he wants to do. Verse three says that he is great in power. He sovereignly controls this world. He can act in whatever ways he chooses. And as this all-powerful creator, he comes to confront the nations and to bring justice on their evil. And, And you even see a picture here where he is frustrating the evil's plans, Right? He takes these evil plans and he frustrates them. It says in verse 8 that he'll make a complete end of his adversaries. He'll pursue them into the darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? Right? It's just, this, this question that, that is being posed there. Who can plot against the Lord? He'll make a complete end, verse 9 says. They, they can't rise up against him. He'll cut it off. He'll, he'll, he'll make it pass away. Um, it's, such a, it's such a great picture, a great comforting picture for us to see that, that God is all-powerful and evil even has to submit to him. So he's omnipotent in his response towards sin. But number two, we also see that he's slow in his anger towards sin. Now, you may not feel the slowness because I read through chapter one pretty rapidly there, right? And you, and you see it starts with he's jealous, he's avenging, he's wrathful, um, he keeps his wrath. Verse three talks about him being slow to anger. But if we think about the time frame that we're dealing with, right? 100 years have passed since he first showed up and, and gave this prophetic message to Nineveh that their, their violence had come to his attention and that he was not going to tolerate it, and they repented. We don't know how quickly sin sprung back up in this, in this city. But to see the patient endurance of God to allow 
another hundred years to pass when he could have very rightfully dropped this hammer on that first population that heard this prophetic message, right? So way back in uh, the, the um, 700s BC, when, when Jonah comes to Nineveh, right? God would have been very right and good and just to, to bring punishment upon Nineveh. Jonah certainly wouldn't have argued with it, right? Jonah certainly felt like it would have been very just to bring punishment upon the Assyrian empire at that time. But we see that God was purposefully delaying his judgment because why? He gives opportunity for repentance. In 2 Peter chapter 3, See, we can, we can trust what 2 Peter chapter 3 has to say about God being slow to anger and giving opportunity for repentance because we've seen him do it in the Old Testament, right? The New Testament and the Old Testament are linked together. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, we see why God sometimes delays his judgment. We see why he doesn't carry out his wrath when he could very uh, rightfully do so in a certain time period. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. So we've been, we've been killing the fact that God is slow to anger, right? Like we've been, we've been harping on that for weeks now. He's slow to anger, slow to anger, slow to anger. But you might fall prey to what Jonah's mindset was, and that's, man, you're slow to keep your promises, right? You're supposed to judge this. You're supposed to deal with this. You're supposed to be a just God, and and you're not carrying through with your justice, right? Peter helps us see that, look, he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And God was very intentional not to judge Nineveh when Jonah came calling. Why? because there were people there that were going to repent. And, and as I was, was kind of looking back through this this morning, like I was just kind of hit with this notion that there are Assyrians in heaven today, I believe. Because I believe that repentance was genuine, right? Like I don't, I don't think you could pull one over on God. I don't think Nineveh repented and Jonah was like, what are you doing? Like you should be punishing them. And God's like, well, I think they're sorry, right? And so I'm going to forgive them. And then like a couple of years later, it's like, oh, I was wrong. They weren't sorry. Right? I don't think that, that's not what's happening here. Right? These people genuinely repent, I believe. They come running to God for refuge. Right? The king's like, let's do everything that we can right? because maybe this God of Jonah will relent of his anger towards us. And he does. He does because I believe he knows. I mean, this chapter right here says he knows who takes refuge in him. He knows who truly trusts in him. Right? And so, so God responds to that, right? And, and I believe that there are Assyrians in heaven today praising God that he is slow to anger, praising God that he's willing to relent from his anger when you come running to him. Think about that. It's not just Jews in heaven right now, right? It's not just Southern Baptists that are in heaven right now. There are Assyrians, I believe, in heaven right now that are praying to God, praising God, potentially in their own tongue still, right? Like, I don't know how languages work, but I know people from every tribe, nation, and tongue will be there. Now, whether they're speaking in every tribe, nation, and tongue, I don't know, right? But they are there glorifying God at the throne right now, saying, you are a God who is slow to anger, right? Loving and kind and gracious and merciful. God could have dropped the hammer on Nineveh 100 years before this, and there would have been a lot of injustices that wouldn't have been carried out. But he's not slow to fulfill his promise. 
He is patient and he is kind. And while Jonah would have said, you need to do this right now, and there's a group of Assyrians that are saying, thank you, God, for not doing it right now. Thank you, God, for not doing it right now. And that's where we need to picture every single one of us, that there was a time frame, right? I don't believe any of us probably got saved the moment that we understood the gospel, right? Like there, were, there was probably, you know, and I know it's weird, like when you grow up in a Christian home, like when am I held accountable? Like when, when is this? But like, I, I venture to believe that all of us reach that point, and then there's a, 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 at least some gap there before we respond to the gospel. And so we can all praise God today, saying thank you. Thank you for not being your, your wrathful, just self when you could have been. Thank you for being slow to anger. Thank you for being merciful and kind and gracious. Because if it wasn't for that, none of us would be saved, right? None of us, none of us would be able to run and take refuge in him. This prophet, Nahum, is building on that revelation found in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, that he is a slow to anger God. And we were talking as a Bible department this week as we were looking at uh, important themes and verses that we want to emphasize to our kids this year. And when we were talking about how this theme of him being slow to anger, it just comes up constantly. It just keeps popping up, right? It's an important piece of understanding who God is. He is an angry God, but he's slow to get there. Right? He's patient in getting there, but he will get there. And, that, and that's assurance to us because number three, he is just in his actions towards sin. Right? He's not that pushover substitute teacher who wants to be everybody's friend and is so patient and so loving and so merciful that nobody ever gets in trouble. Right? Like we, don't, we don't have a pushover God. And I think that's where Jonah was kind of was landing at is that you're, you're not a God of justice anymore. Like you've sacrificed your justice to be kind to these people. And that's simply not the case, right? Even in the Old Testament, what do we see in Romans chapter three? God passed over these former sins, right? So that in his divine forbearance, he could bring wrath and justice upon his son, Jesus Christ, so that we would not have to bear his wrath. Right? He is a just God, and he will respond to sin. Why? Because verse 3 says he will not clear the guilty. He won't clear the guilty. And that's where Jonah had kind of missed it. And Jonah maybe lacking some revelation that would have helped him understand it, right? That these people aren't just being forgiven without some type of justice happening, and the justice will happen on his son in the future, right? God will pour out his wrath on the cross, And so those Assyrians that are worshiping God in heaven today, they didn't just get in because God was having a good day that day, right? God said, I will will respond to the work that I've done in your heart where you are now repenting towards me and I I will count your sin towards Christ and I will count his righteousness towards you, right? Salvation works the exact same way in the Old Testament as it does in the New Testament. Nobody's earning their way into heaven. Nobody's catching God on a good day to get there. He will punish evil. He will not let the evil endure. Right? Verse 6 says, you can't stand before his indignation. You can't endure the heat of his anger. His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are broken into pieces by him. He is full of wrath. Why is he so um, moved to act towards Nineveh? Look in Nahum chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. And they've been guilty of shedding innocent blood for, for decades. And God responds to the shed of innocent blood. He responds to their idolatry. Verse 4, 
all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms, right? It's, it's language that's often tied to our understanding of false gods. Verse five, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your face, and I'll make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you and treat you with contempt, make you a spectacle. All who look at you will shrink from you and say, wasted is Nineveh, who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Their pride got the best of them. It goes on to verse eight um, and kind of talks about things that they had done to, to feel prideful about the fact that they were gonna endure forever. It talks about how they defeated this city by the Nile River. And it's, it's foreshadowing the fact that they too would be surrounded by water, thinking that they were protected. But in the same way this city in Egypt fell, because God gave Assyria victory over them, God would give victory over another nation over Assyria. And so you see how he addresses their pride in verses eight through 19. And then verse 19, that that question that we've already highlighted, this book ends with a question. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? He's gonna deal with the violent and the arrogant. He will preserve the faithful remnant. And that's what we see in this, this book of Nahum, that God does move. He does act against injustice. Our brothers and sisters in Christ won't have to endure it forever, all right? Um, but he's patient towards the oppressors. He's patient, allowing opportunity for repentance. So we rejoice today because God's good. He's good from two sides of this. He's good because he won't let injustice endure forever. He's good in that he delays his judgment, giving opportunity for repentance. All right, so that brings us to number two. Repent because God is angry. Repent because God is angry. We don't wanna minimize that in scripture, right? We don't wanna strip the gospel of the fact that we have offended a holy God and he is angry towards that sin. He's angry towards it. Number one, he's jealous for his glory and he has every right to be and he's jealous for his people, right? So you see that God is working and moving not just against an oppressive nation, but against an oppressive nation who is oppressing his people, right? And so that gives us great hope today too, that God is, is working to protect us. He's working to, uh, to deal rightly with us. And he deals with uh, those who would oppress us. He's jealous. And number two, he's actively opposed to those who work evil, He's actively opposed to them. We see that in chapter two, verse 13. We've already read that verse. It says, um, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall no longer be heard. And then he says in verse um, five of chapter three, behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I'll lift up your skirts over your face. I'll put in my notes here uh, what, what he's saying and what he's not saying. He, he's not just deserting them. He's not just abandoning them. He's not just separating from them. He is promising to actively oppose them. That's, that's a dangerous spot to be in right there, right? Where, where God is against you. God is opposing you. Some of the language that you read in chapter two and three talks about there will be no more descendants of the Assyrians, right? You don't, you don't meet somebody and, uh, you know, them describe to you like, I'm a descendant of Assyria. 
right? Like, like those people are gone. There, there are no more of them. Uh, their descendants have been cut off, and so have their gods. Uh, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12 describes them as no longer being the dangerous lion, and that was kind of a picture of Assyria, was this ravenous lion. And they've kind of been defanged by God. They're not that nation anymore. Um, for a long period of time, nobody could find Nineveh, like archaeologists didn't really know where it was, and uh, it was in 1842, so in that 19th century, 1842, they, they stumbled across it, they found it, and uh, as they were excavating the site of Nineveh, um, most of the time when you find a nation like that, you find the, the, the remains of a nation, um, you find trinkets and treasures and, you know, historical evidence of the, the nation, right? Um, the, the archaeologists that found Nineveh could find nothing of value. Nothing of value was left behind, which is consistent with what we read here in Nahum, that they would be plundered in such a way where everything was stripped, that they were completely left bare. Um, and that's a sign of God working very intentionally to address their sin. So we see in chapter 2, it describes the coming downfall of Assyria. Babylonians are going to come. If you want to read through chapter 2 this week, you'll see... Uh, Soldiers coming, you'll see chariots coming, you'll see chaos amongst the, the walls where they're trying to protect themselves. Um, you'll see language that deals with the slaughter of the people, the plundering of the city. And then chapter three describes how it not only impacts Nineveh, but also impacts the rest of the empire. Um, the empire was built on injustice towards others. And now, some of that we've already read today, none of the nations around them come to help them. What are they doing instead? It says in the end of chapter 3, they're rejoicing. They're clapping their hands. And what we see here is that Assyria had performed so much injustice and so much violence towards people that they've, they've sown that, and now they reap it towards themselves, and nobody comes, nobody comes to help them. Nobody comes to save them. All right? And then number three, we want to rejoice that God is good. We want to repent because he's angry. And then number three, we want to run because he is a refuge and what we mean by run is we don't run from him, we run to him. We run to him because he's a good God. He's a good God. And so as I'm, as I'm reading this in chapter one, where you've got angry, vengeful, wrathful God, right? Everything inside of us would, would tell us to flee from this, right? That, that flight would be the answer. We don't stand and try to fight him. We try, we try, to, we try to flee from him, right? But what does what is, what is Nahum used to describe God and his goodness. It says in verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. I couldn't help but think about uh, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament, and that being the story of Rahab. Because Rahab is in a, in a setting in Jericho where rumors are circulating about the power of Israel and the power of their God, and they've already obliterated a couple of, of cities, and, and Jericho's like next on the map, right? They can, they can see, they know that, that they're working towards Jericho, right? And everybody's kind of deciding how to handle this. Probably some people in Jericho have fled and tried to, fle you know, try to flee to another city. Others have really buttoned up and tightened down, and we're going to fight, and we're going to endure this, right? But Rahab takes these spies, and, you, and you, you listen to the conversation. I mean, she, she is having a conversation much like what I, I feel like the king of Nineveh was having amongst his people when Jonah came, right? She's, she's telling him, she's like, look, I've heard about your God. I know he's coming. Like, take me, take me to him. 
right? Like, I'm not going to run from him, and I certainly don't want to stay here with my people. Like, please take me with you. Please take me to your God, right? Like, the only, the only hope I have, the only answer I have is to run to him in hopes of mercy and grace because there's no escaping him. There's no escaping him, and there's certainly no standing before him and enduring that, right? And so the picture here in Nahum is that the right response to an angry God is to run to him, we run to him and we know that he will receive us because he's a good God. We can run to him as a, as a point of refuge when we're ready to express faith in him. Number one, he knows those who belong to him. What a comforting uh, promise there to see that in verse seven, he knows those who take refuge in him. Right? He doesn't forget. He's not confused. Right? Sometimes, sometimes we're in that state. We don't. We don't know for sure people that, that come and join our church. We don't know for sure people who make professions of faith, if they're truly a follower of Christ or somebody who's going to fall away. You know, when we talked in Hebrews, man, the only way to, to really see is to see those people who endure to the very end. Then, then we know for sure that those people are saved. Um, God knows from the very beginning. God knows those who take refuge in him. And the encouraging thing to us is that he welcomes those who truly come to him. He, he welcomes those, whether it's Rahab, who's a Canaanite, whether it's the king of Nineveh and his people, right? We can come and we can run to him and take refuge in him, no matter our background. As an image bearer of God created by him, we can run to him and experience that forgiveness. And when we do, number two, he's a stronghold in the day of trouble. He cares for those who belong to him. He works good for those who truly come to him. I love contrasting Nahum with what we see in Romans chapter 8. Because we've seen a couple of times here in Nahum, the Lord saying, I am against you. I am against you. And this is what it looks like for me to be against you, right? But in Romans chapter 8, we see the flip side of what it looks like, not only for God not to be against us, but for God to be for us, right? 828, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we looked at this not too long ago. God works good for his children, but the good is quantified. The good is that he conforms us to the image of his son, which isn't always, doesn't always feel good. Right, But he has promised good to us. I'm going to conform you to the image of my son. Verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Then verse 31, now that like, we kind of understand our salvation, it says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Not only is God not against us anymore, Nobody can be against us. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also be uh, also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Man, let's don't lose sight of the comfort that comes from knowing that God is not against us. He's for us. Man, there's times where uh, at school, when I know I have to address a situation with a kid, it's been brought to my attention, this kid said this or did this or whatever. The kid knows that I know, but I don't have time to deal with it just yet. And so I'm walking the halls, I'm, I'm dealing with other stuff, and like we make eye contact, right? And the kid's like, ooh, like I know it's coming, right? And I, and I don't let on when it is coming, right? But they kind of live in this state of my principal's against me right now, right? Like there's something that I've done and I'm gonna, have to, I'm gonna have to sit down in his office and they know it's coming, right? But to, to have that be taken care of, you know, we, we come in, we talk, and then to have that lifted and for me and that student to be back on, on right terms, good terms, what well, changes their demeanor completely, right? For us to have been in a state where God was against us and now to have God not only not against us, but for us, man, we would do well to meditate upon that, to really think about what that means on a daily, weekly basis to, to have the sovereign ruler of this universe who oversees everything and who has the power to do everything that he promises for him to be for us and not against us. To kind of see a summary of this book of Nahum, um, we see that God is compassionate towards people who are oppressed and treated with injustice. He won't let it endure forever. He's not a God who, who remains silent, who doesn't hear the cries of those who are oppressed. He is a God who is compassionate towards people, and he will move in his justice. He will act towards injustice, but he's patient so that people can turn to him before he acts. He's patient. He allows people the opportunity to run to him. He will not delay forever, though because his goodness compels him to act. So again, he's not the pushover God who, who just doesn't know how to handle conflict, doesn't know how to handle justice, and so he just ends up never acting, right? We've all been under leadership like that, that uh, you know and the leadership knows what needs to be done, but there's uh, just a hesitancy to carry it out, right? Worried about the ramifications of it. God's not worried about the ramifications. He's not slow to keep his promises. He is patient in keeping his promises, right? He is patient and there are people in heaven rejoicing because of that patience today. And we, we are among them. We're counted among them. So therefore, his delayed action makes him good, right? It's delayed, which makes him good. But there's action that still happens, which makes him good too. And we see that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When it comes not on Assyria, not on Babylon, not on Edom, but it comes on the entire world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. He's coming He's coming to bring justice. He's coming to bring vengeance. But he didn't come yesterday, and he hasn't come so far today. And it's not because he's slow to keep his promise. 
It's because he's such a good God that before he carries out his justice, he gives ample opportunity for repentance. He gives ample opportunity for people to run and find refuge in him. Remember we talked earlier in the prophets, he roars and calls people to salvation so that when he roars on that day of judgment, we can be on the other side of that roar, not enduring his judgment, but being a part of it with him. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are a just God because this world would not be right if evil could be tolerated forever, if oppression could be tolerated forever, if injustices were never dealt with. God, we are thankful that when we see these type of things around us, we know they're not right. We know they're not good. And sometimes we can't stop it from happening. Sometimes we can't fix it. And so God, we take great comfort in knowing that you will one day, that you're compassionate towards those who are being oppressed. You are, um, you are going to move in action towards those who are violent and arrogant. But God, we know it's only by your grace that we're not violent, arrogant people ourselves. And so God, we thank you that in the midst of your justice, you are also a God who is slow to anger, who shows kindness and mercy and grace. And God, we thank you for our salvation this morning. We thank you that we have been spared from your wrath because we could have never stood and endured it. God, help us to be intentional and faithful to to take that gospel message to those around us. Help us to be faithful to image who you are to others around us so they can better understand who you are, that complete picture of who you are, a God who hates sin, a God who moves and acts justly, but a God who is also very willing to show loving kindness and favor towards those who will come to you. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. We rejoice over that this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.